Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Rob Breckenridge and Roger Kincaid. If you missed our show today, well, we had an opportunity to speak with Canada's opposition leader, Rana Ambrose, who made the case for a referendum on electoral reform. Yeah, we also spoke to someone who opposes keeping passengers on airplanes for eight hours. This happened with a, a Sunwing flight. I was really trying hard for a good segue there, Rob. You can uh, listen to our program uh, Monday to Friday normally. Been off this week for the uh, World Junior Hockey Championships. Uh, they've preempted us. But anyway, normally Monday to Friday, 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. All right, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge Show. Still a lot to get to today. Believe it or not, we're going to talk to Dr. Harold Katz about uh, bad breath and the holiday foods that give you the worst breath. I don't know. Think about what it is. We're going to get into that at 1130. Uh, and we're also going to talk about Bill Cosby, who is uh, being arraigned today. He's facing charges now and will be in a Pennsylvania state courtroom this afternoon. But uh, before we get to that, let's, let's uh, focus on federal politics for just a second. And uh, our new official leader of the opposition, uh, albeit uh, interim leader of the opposition, Ronna Ambrose, is about to join us. She's at home in, in, in Alberta. I believe she was skiing out at Lake Louise, Rob. And no I, I wonder if... The leader of the opposition gets like the RCMP detail and has to like out, tries to out ski them. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I mean, the, the liberals promised a lot during the campaign, and as we've seen in in, in the few the, the first few weeks uh, of their tenure, that uh, some promises might be um, more flexible than others. There, there's been some backtracking, obviously, on refugees, some other promises as well. What about the promise on electoral uh, electoral reform? Because the liberals told us during the election, you know, if you elect us, that uh, this will be the last election under the first-past-the-post system. So now that they've won, they, I guess they seem to believe that they've got a mandate to move on this. But I think the problem is they never really promised anything to Canadians other than we'll change the system. We're talking about dramatic change, minor change, some tinkering. So what would be tantamount? What would be keeping their promise? And, and how much now do they need to consult with Canadians before moving forward? All right, let's bring uh, our guest onto the program now. This is Ron Ambrose, leader of the opposition. It's a delight to have you today, Ms. Ambrose. Thanks for being here. Thank you. How are you guys? Well, we're well, really thanks. Well. Do you want to get my skiing Good. question out of the way and we can get into the real interview? <laughs> <laughs> sure, or I've got the uh, the Christmas treat that gives you the worst breath. That would be hummus. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, okay. Well, let, let's let's move on to this situation with, with uh, electoral reform. Uh, as Rob put it in the preamble, there. I mean, this is a, a, a promise that Prime Minister Trudeau made during the election that this would be the last election under uh, the first past the post system. Uh, is is there anything that that should concern us that, uh, that that electoral reform could be achieved simply by passing a bill in Parliament, or uh, would there be more steps involved, say, involving the Supreme Court? Well, I think. I think the, the major issue is that when governments win elections, they have a mandate to government to govern, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, but governments that are elected, especially with only 39% of the vote, like the Liberals received in the last elections, don't have mandates for certain kinds of changes, and this would be one of them. When you're looking at making a fundamental change, like changing the electoral system, you're talking about changing the nature of our democracy in Canada. You're talking about changing how we're governed. And when you talk about a fundamental change like that to the country and the way that our voting system works and what each vote means for an individual Canadian, uh, I think it, it, it's a different magnitude of change. And in that case, I think it's important that everyone has a say and it be a countrywide referendum where, for instance, if you whether you voted Liberal, NDP, Green Party, Libertarian, Conservative, or maybe you didn't even vote in the last election, 
But this is such a big change to the system that every person should have a say. And so my view, and I think the view of many people that, that are, you know, thinkers around the issue of electoral reform and, and other kinds of democratic reform are arguing that a referendum really is the only legitimate way to make a change of this magnitude to our system. What kind of a referendum are we talking about? A yes or no referendum? Should we change the electoral system? Are we talking about a process where we, you know, whittle down two or three or four options and put those to Canadians? Well, we don't know because the what Trudeau Trudeau t- mused during the election about what his preferred system was, and I think it was a ranked ballot. But now they're saying, you know, the last election was the last first past, past the post election, which means they want to change the electoral system. But we don't know how they want to change it into what system. So there has to be, obviously, a discussion about what that is. They haven't put forward any alternative. Uh, they're just saying they're going to change it. Now, the idea that a parliamentary committee in the House of Commons made up of a number of parliamentarians would somehow be enough or a legitimate vehicle to make this decision is just, to me, it's wrong. It has to be something that goes to the people. So it's a fundamental change to how we're governed, uh, and and it's a fundamental change in terms of what my vote or your vote means. I mean, in the status quo, you know, you go to the ballot box, you vote for your MP, you like that person, you research them, and you know if they are, he or she won the most votes that they'll be your member of parliament. Uh, and so this is, it's not the government's right to change what your vote means without you having a say. So right now the, the issue is that the Liberals have said that they will not hold a referendum. And so what we're insisting on as the opposition is that they should, is that this is something much bigger than partisan politics. It's much bigger than the House of Commons Parliamentary Committee that they would strike, remembering they'd also have a majority on that committee. But even if it was a committee made up of all the parties in the House with equal representation, it's still not sufficient to legitimately canvas the views of Canadians. Um, The only real legitimate way to know what Canadians feel on an issue of this magnitude is to give them a say. And people, of course, I mean, the Liberals have said that plebiscites are are difficult to manage. Well, my argument to that is welcome to democracy. Democracy can be very messy, but it is the best system in the world, and it's the system of rule by the people. And when you have a large question like this that affects the way we are governed in this country, this is the legitimate way to, and a credible way, to find an answer. And I don't know what that answer will be. Right now, I don't know what the question is. In fact, right now, I don't even get uh, to cast a ballot because the Liberals are saying that they would not have a referendum on this issue. And I don't think that's right. But let's say we had a referendum. Let's say we could push them into having a referendum so we can all have a say on how we're governed in this country. I don't know what the answer will be. And as the leader of a party, whatever the answer is, I will have to adjust to that new reality. But the bottom line is Canadians would have a say. And I think that's the right thing to do. But what what do you want that to look like? Do you want the Liberals to get a yes or no from Canadians before proceeding? Or is it simply a case of saying, okay, we've decided we're going to change the system, so here are three possible options for how the system might change, and Canadians can just pick one of them. Should the status quo still be an option? Well, I think that's, I suppose the status quo should be an option, but we haven't even got to that point. At this point, we don't have an option. The Liberals are saying that they're arguing that their mandate 
as an elected government in the last election is sufficient for them to change the electoral system in this country. And our argument is that it's not. Uh, if you are looking at a change of this magnitude, I mean, the last time a change of this magnitude happened was under Mr. Mulroney, which was a conservative government, and there was a referendum. That was Charlottetown, uh, and it didn't pass. But you have to trust Canadians with issues of this magnitude. And when there is a referendum, people educate themselves. They talk to their neighbors. They talk to their families. They read. They learn. And they cast a, a ballot. But right now, the argument is that it's something that is inherently up to the government liberals to decide. And I don't think that's right. I think it has to go to Canadians. Uh, and it might be an unyieldy process. And they may not get what they want. I don't know. But it shouldn't be up to a partisan it shouldn't be up to partisan politics to make this decision. What is your preference? What, what I don't have a. I, I actually don't have a preference. I know a lot of people argue that the system we have is good, and other people argue that proportional representation. There's so many different arguments for different types of systems. As I said, whatever the outcome would be if we were able to have a referendum, political parties will have to adjust, and that would be the reality. But the issue here is that it shouldn't be a partisan issue. This is too big of an issue for one political party, particularly a party that has is holding the reins of power. Uh, and the argument that, that a lot of those who care about democratic reform, the argument they make is that the reason why you should go to the people is that it, it's almost impossible for the party that holds power, in this case would be the Liberals, to not somehow manipulate the system. And we're already seeing that because they're refusing to hold a referendum. They don't want to let go of that, their ability to make that decision on behalf of Canadians within the parliamentary system where they hold a majority. And with issues of this magnitude, it, it's bigger than that. They've they got to let go of that. Uh, power and they have to put it to the people uh, and that's that's my argument and I think that and I I can't assume what the outcome is right uh, there might there may be a change or not but I think these are that's the reality of these of issues of this magnitude we're talking about the way we vote and we're not talking about I mean the argument they make is oh well the conservatives brought in the Fair Elections Act well the Fair Elections Act did not change the way we vote it changed things like you need to bring ID to vote it tinkered with the system to make it more accountable and transparent and in the last election there were absolutely no concerns with election with voter turnout which of course was the all of the arguments against the Fair Elections Act that making people have ID was going to suppress the voter turnout well it did nothing of the sort uh, and so that that uh, comparison is ludicrous uh, tinkering with the with well, the Hannah, way is it, is it is it ludicrous? I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it is absolutely, ludicrous. I, I certainly, absolutely, I certainly understand the arguments that you that you just put forth. But the Fair Elections Act was did impact how Canadians vote, what Canadians had to do in order to cast their ballot, in order to exercise their franchise. It seems to me right, that changing so, the so electoral bring... system is is just an extension of that. When the Fair Elections Act was debated, it was it was passed in in exactly the same way that you suggest, Mr. Trudeau was planning on, on passing this motion. Having to bring ID that is readily available to all Canadians to vote so that there's no voter fraud, comparing that to changing the way in which Canada is governed uh, is not, that's, 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 it's a ludicrous argument well, that you still... would need a referendum, you would need a referendum to ask people to bring ID to vote. Oh, okay. uh, I think, what... I think, 
I think uh, most scholars and even most Canadians w- would say, really, we need to hold a massive referendum that will cost millions of dollars so that I bring my ID to vote? Because most people do bring their ID to yeah, vote. But on the other side of that, Ms. Ambrose, is people saying, really, do we need a referendum to decide whether or not we need, uh, whether we should switch from first-past-the-post to proportional representation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We're talking about a fundamental change to how the country is governed. It's a fundamental change to our democracy. Uh, and whenever these kinds of issues have been dealt with, whether it's in the three provinces in Canada where we've already seen this happen, uh, a referendum was held, a plebiscite was held. In the majority of countries where this has been undertaken, Australia, New Zealand, for instance, a referendum was held. Because it is a major change. And when a major change to democracy happens, everyone should have a say. And it shouldn't be based on one particular party's interest. It has to go to the people uh, and they should decide. And that's the difference. So I, I think it's incumbent on the Liberals to let go of that partisanship and say, take it to the people and let the people decide and, and remove it from uh, remove it from that. And no one knows what the result would be, uh, but neither do they, neither do I. But that's OK. I think you have to trust Canadians uh, and whatever happens, political parties will have to adjust. But but when you have a fundamental change, it's it's up to the people to make these decisions. Well, I agree. This is a fundamental change. I mean, but if if the parallel is not to the Fair Elections Act, is there a parallel at all between your government's push for Senate reform and and what this new government's talking about doing with regard to the electoral system? Well, of course, you know that we pushed for uh, for Senate reform, and the Supreme Court quashed that. Uh, so, you know, if, if we had had it our way, we would have full and fair elect Senate elections. Which is a country. big change. I, I think a positive change, but that would have been a fundamental change. Yes, and that would have had to go to, uh, you know, to, could have been a, a constitutional amendment. Uh, and there were premiers such as Brad Wall who were willing to, uh, willing to initiate uh, such a call, and we were willing to support that. Uh, and I think that's another another question that is something that can go to the Canadian people. But unfortunately, that was thwarted by the Supreme Court. The last time that we saw something like this go forward was Charlottetown. Uh, and Mulroney put it to a referendum. Uh, when, when there are these large issues that are fundamental to democracy and fundamental to the, to the way every Canadian votes, regardless of what your political stripe is, it goes to a referendum. We saw it in British Columbia uh, we saw it in Ontario. It was under a liberal government that they held a plebiscite to change the electoral system. I know that Gordon Gibson, who was the person in charge of this citizens, a very highly regarded scholar and public policy uh, person in, in British Columbia, who was the person in charge of the Citizens' Assembly, when they looked at a referendum or they had their plebiscite on electoral reform, I know he said yesterday the only legitimate way to do this is to have a referendum. Uh, and I, I concur, uh, and I don't think we should be afraid of that. I mean, what what is the fear of putting the question to the people? Well, I, I, I don't. Okay, is it fear or is it questioning the necessity of it? And, and here's the example that I would use. I would think that if we looked at the Canadian federal election in the year 1993, 
that we kind of get a general consensus that maybe proportional representation is better than the first past the post system. Because in the 1993 election, as I'm sure you know, the fifth place party was reduced to two seats. It was the government before that. But they actually collected more votes than the official opposition did. They didn't collect as many votes as the third place party, mind you. But the third mm-hmm. place party got two fewer seats than the Bloc Québécois mm-hmm. did. So why does this have to go to a referendum if we've got the body of academic knowledge that we have behind it and elected parliamentarians whom we should be able to respect to make these decisions mm-hmm. for us? It was John A. McDonald who said that, that, no, I'm elected to speak on behalf of my constituents. The re- the re- is a referendum necessary? We have to remember that that uh, the irony of all ironies is that the liberals are suggesting that the mandate that they've received in the last election from first past the post that they claim is a system that is no longer valid to make decisions on behalf of Canadians is the mandate, the 39% that they majority that they hold in the House of Commons, or that they receive to hold a majority in the House of Commons, is ironically what they're claiming gives them the mandate to unilaterally change our voting system. You have to remember they hold a majority in the House of Commons. So it's not necessarily, people aren't out there that may not have voted Liberal or Conservative or even NDP or even the one Green Party seat that's in the House of Commons, they're not feeling represented. So this idea of proportional representation happening in the House of Commons on this issue is is also, it's a moot point. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a, a huge change to our electoral system. I mean, academics will argue uh, about all of the different kinds of systems and what their merits are. And I'll leave those arguments to them. And there are merits to many of the systems. And I don't, I don't, I frankly, I don't uh, have an opinion. I think that there's different reasons why each has, uh, you know, has merit. But at the end of the day, the issue is should there be a referendum or not? And I think there has to be if we're going to change our electoral system. It's too big of an issue for one, one party who holds a majority in the House of Commons to decide. They hold a majority not only in the House of Commons, but they hold a majority on the parliamentary committee that will make the decision. So that's not, that does not constitute uh, any proportionality, if you want to argue that. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's, it's really has to be up to the people because it's a, it's a change to how their vote will be cast and what that vote translates to in terms of what it means and how we will be governed. Uh, and, it, and we haven't changed how we're governed since Confederation. And so I think it's a, it's a big change if it happens. And yeah. so it, it, when these things come forward, uh, the fact that there's more than one alternative to the status quo is of key importance. We don't know what the Liberals have in mind in terms of a change. There's a list of potential options. Uh, but in the absence of naming any specific alternative, voters have not, in fact, had an opportunity to choose one over the other. So this idea that the Liberals have a mandate to make this make this change, as you allude to, is not necessarily credible because they haven't actually articulated a change in the election. Their platform does not articulate a change in the electoral system other than there will be one. Uh, so, I mean, we can argue about this for a long time, and academics will argue what's the best system for Canada. Uh, and they might argue that the status quo is not. Some people argue the status quo works well. Uh, but I think on the issue of do we hold a referendum or not, this is a big issue. Okay. Uh, and on, on these big issues, people should have a say. When you change the rules of the game, okay. especially in our, in our system, every Canadian should have an opportunity 
Right. Right. Well, we'll see what happens. As they've ruled out a referendum, but we don't know, as you say, how they're going to whittle down that list or how they're going to come up with options or how this is all going to be finalized. We'll watch it closely. Ronna Ambrose, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Take good care. All the best to you. Happy New Year. Ronna Ambrose, uh, interim leader of the Conservative Party, official opposition leader. Look, it's it's a big, big change, and there are a lot of systems out there. And so the liberals just get to say, we get to pick whichever system we want, and because people voted for us, that that's how it's going to be. Uh, so I, I think there's something to this, uh, this referendum idea. We'll take a break here. We'll come back. More thoughts on this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, we're back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. So we want to explore a bit more and how things went wrong on, on this particular flight uh, yesterday, but also what these airlines are obligated or not obligated to do in terms of uh, looking after people. Uh, Gabor Lucas is an uh, airline passenger consumer advocate, uh, took on uh, Air Canada in a high-profile case a few years ago, joins us on, on the line here. Uh, Gabor, why don't you start by just giving us your thoughts on, uh, on this incident involving Sunwing yesterday? This is absolutely shocking and appalling. Um, it's very clear in Sunwing's own tariff, the contract with the passengers, that after 90 minutes, 9-0, passengers have the right to disembark as long as it's safe and practical to do so. And I'm not accepting that it was impossible to disembark passengers for eight hours. That just makes no sense. Uh, it is obviously somewhat expensive for the airline, but passengers do have those rights. And just because the airline doesn't want to pay for it, it doesn't mean that passengers should be stuck in a unvented and, and unserviced uh, aircraft for eight hours. They're just completely unreasonable. So what, what does the airline have to pay for exactly? Now, they, they decided to land in Hamilton so that they could refuel and, and switch crews, and then they maintained because of the weather situation there, they weren't able to bring the ramp or the staircase up to the airplane. Does that, does that add up to you? It doesn't add up to me. Obviously, I mean, you know, it would require an expert's evidence to uh, look into that, but there are many other options in such a situation. Were they able to refuel at all, or were they? I mean, uh, if there is such a bad weather that you cannot uh, let people off in such situation, then they should land in Toronto Airport, not at uh, Hamilton. Certainly, Toronto Airport does have good facilities where you can uh, bring the aircraft right to those uh, tunnels. Mm-hmm. So people could have disembarked. Yeah, one interesting thing in the story to me is I haven't heard widespread complaints of uh, other aircraft suffering the same fate, not being able to, uh, uh, you know, attach to a jetway or, or get the ramp out to, to, to the aircraft. So, I mean, th- does the absence of that uh, uh, sort of take away from Sunwing's story? Um, Hamilton is a small airport, you must bear in mind. So large airports have those jetways where you don't have those problems. I'm not sure whether they have stairs in Hamilton or my recollection is they have only stairs. They don't have jetways there. So um, I I cannot say that it was completely impossible what they are saying, but the duration that they are claiming doesn't add up to me at all. Um, Here in Halifax, we just got 25 centimeters of snow, if I recall it correctly, in one night, and there are vehicles that can clean up the snow, and you do have buses running. So I'm sure that with some effort and quite possibly some cost, 
it would have been possible to get there a ramp to, to get there um, stairs maybe the passenger would have had to walk um, between the stairs and the and the uh, terminal because buses couldn't run that's uh, something I could possibly see happen but this the way I look at it is a complete disregard to the needs and the rights of passengers so why would they do this is is it a concern about it, the answer is they do it because they can, because they get away with it, because there's no proper enforcement of rights of passengers in Canada. And that's something that ties in with how the Canadian Transportation Agency has been captured by the industry. It's a, it's a case of regulatory capture. The Canadian Transportation Agency is the body that is supposed to ensure that airlines comply with the tariffs, and they don't. They don't do that. The um, manager of the enforcement at the Canadian Transportation Agency is on first-name basis with the people against whom she's supposed to take action. But, I mean, in terms of now all, all this publicity, all, all the bad press around this, what are obviously now a whole lot of unhappy customers, the cost of providing even just these these vouchers, which I guess we could talk about that too. But, I mean, it seems as though they, they, how do they come out ahead here? Have they just found some way to get the people off, let them remain in the airport, or even to put them up in hotels? It seems as though that would have been a, a better outcome for everyone, including the airline. First, this was vouchers. If you had been in that situation, would you ever fly with the airline again? Yeah, I don't know. I would. <laughs> so I don't think the voucher is really valuable in that sense. Uh, but more importantly, Sunwing has had a very bad reputation, had many scandals before. If you do some search, they left some passengers behind in some cases. Um, they delayed flights by 24 hours and wrecked people holidays. Um, they have been the, you know, story. Uh, I mean, in in a in a marketplace um, episode about their passenger rights, they have been selected as an example of the bad airline, the airline which does things wrong. So it seems that there is no sufficient competition. People who are going for a vacation are fooled by the advertising are not informing themselves sufficiently of what they are getting into. And also, people have a tendency of thinking thinking that this is not going to happen to me, and that's wrong. The way you should choose an airline that you fly with is what, how will they treat me when things go wrong? Because things can go wrong. Right. I mean... Not to not to go to bat for Sunwing here, but this is not something. I mean, this isn't the majority of their flights that get held up on the tarmac in Hamilton. So, speaking to this particular instance, if we just weigh one side against the other, uh, does does the cost of removing everyone from the aircraft, uh, giving them meal vouchers and hotel vouchers for the eight hour delay, would that be more expensive than the public relations fallout that they're dealing with right now? Um, the, the, the sad reality is that the public relations fallout does not translate to actual financial loss for Sunwing, as far as I can see. They had many scandals before, many problems, and yet people choose to fly with them, which is what I find very problematic. It's, it, the, the reality is that people who 
are not savvy flyers. People who go on vacation once a year, maybe once in a couple of years, don't have that kind of knowledge of the airlines to know that they should not be flying with Sunwing. Let's say for a moment then that this was completely unavoidable, that there was nothing the airline could have done, and and that there was no choice but to keep these people on the plane in very uncomfortable circumstances. What do they owe these people, in your view? If we were to accept that this was completely unavoidable, I would say nothing. But I don't accept the premise. I don't accept the premise that this was unavoidable. No matter how bad the weather is, you could have just uh, someone who's in a medical emergency. There are ways of getting to an aircraft if one needs to. And I just want to add that I, I heard and I, that someone eventually called 911. I want to compliment the passenger for doing that. That's what I would do if I were stuck in such a situation. I would call 911. Well, Rob, you made the you made the point earlier on uh, off the air, actually on the on the morning news this morning, that if it were grounded for a bomb threat, then they'd have no trouble evacuating that plane. Well, I mean, you they know. got the crew off apparently. <laughs> but, but you know, to to that point, um, you're basically indicating to us that the reason why there's no ventilation and it's an unserviced aircraft is because there's nobody there to hold Sunwing uh, accountable for that. Who needs to step up then? Is it an act of government that has to be implemented? There are two things that could be done here. First, there is the Canadian Transportation Agency. They have very broad regulatory powers. They can impose fines, but they are doing very little in terms of real enforcement actions. They do things that are that make it look as if they were doing something. It's a show, mostly. It's a lip service. But in terms of serious issues, when airlines systematically rip off passengers, for example, by not paying them compensation for delayed baggage or for hotels, they do very little to actually enforce the law. Um, this has been a gradual process under the Harper government where they stuff the agency with appointments that are cozy somehow with the airlines. For example, the vice chair of the Canadian Transportation Agency is a former chief lobbyist for the airline industry. In terms of this kind of incident, though, I mean, passengers being stuck waiting uh, on the tarmac, you, you mentioned 90 minutes as as sort of a, a benchmark, and once it gets past that, then maybe, you know, the, the compensation should increase accordingly. So how do we determine what's reasonable? Uh, well, the 90 minutes is something that's found in the contract between the passengers and sending airlines, so it's a contractual obligation. Um, in the U.S., they have very strict tarmac delay rules. And in the U.S., they do issue fines to airlines that don't respect those rules. Is this a case where Sunwing could have landed at a different airport, by the way, or, or do we not understand that complexity well enough? Of course. And when you have such a situation, especially when there are weather issues, there are a number of airports where you can land. And if you anticipate having such a problem, they could have landed in a completely different airport, possibly in the U.S. Um, there is a Toronto Pearson Airport. I'm not sure what the conditions there were, but I assume that if an aircraft was able to land in Hamilton, probably the aircraft was also able to land at the Toronto Airport. It would have involved some more cost to Sunwing Airlines, but there they would have been able to provide better facilities for sure. But one thing I would want to know 
is from the Hamilton Airport, what is their version of the story? How is it possible that you let an air aircraft land and you give the impression that you're able to service that aircraft and then you leave the aircraft there for eight hours? Mm -hmm. Right. And who, who would make that, that call then? Would it be the pilot or would it be but it was somebody else? Like who, who would make the decision that Hamilton's the place to land? Um, my understanding is that when you, an aircraft needs to refuel, they do have uh, a planned or points where they can land. Eventually, where the aircraft lands is the decision of the pilot. But uh, obviously, you need to also check with the airport. They have the capacity to uh, let you land. So you would be uh, conducting um, the ATC, the air traffic control, advising them of your need and intention to land for refueling if it was not something that you knew when, when you t took off. And then they would modify your uh, flight plan and they would you know, route you to the, to the airport. I mean, when, when aircrafts fly, you don't just fly as you wish. You are under uh, very strict rules of where you can fly and you have to follow what ADC is telling you. All right. Well, a lot of questions uh, remain, and uh, as you say, we'll, we'll certainly uh, watch closely for, for those answers. Uh, Professor Lucas, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. Well, that's Dr. Gabor Lucas, airline passenger, consumer advocate. Uh, you uh, heard Rob Collin, professor. He's a doctorate in mathematics uh, on the side. Yeah, people might remember as well, because that, that case he had against Air Canada was was a big deal, and that was high profile. But he also had a battle with the University of Manitoba, because uh, he was fighting the fact that the university was going to give a degree to somebody who had failed exams, and, and he went to the mat over that as well. Uh, so he's, he's not afraid to drop the gloves, <laughs> take on uh, big organizations. We'd like you to do the same right now. Yeah, maybe not so much drop the gloves, but we'd like to hear your stories. Anyway, 974-8255, after the news to 10 o'clock, we've had a lot of people texting us, tweeting us as well, about uh, some incidents that they've had to endure at the hands of various airlines. Do you have a story that you could share with us? Or maybe you were on this plane coming back uh, from Hamilton that was delayed for eight hours on the tarmac. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770.